Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to a different guest every episode about the five things from their life that they would like to put in a time capsule. They can choose anything that is significant to them, four things that they treasure, and one that they regret and would like to see buried in the ground and banished from their life. My guest in this episode is the actor Tom Goodman-Hill. Tom is probably most recognisable from the roles he's played in the long-running comedy Ideal with Johnny Vegas and The Office with Ricky Gervais, as well as the long-running period drama Mr Selfridge and the futuristic drama Humans. But he's been in dozens of other television shows, such as Spooks, Silent Witness, The Secret Agent, The Hollow Crown, Call the Midwife, Spy, Black Mirror, Doc Martin and Doctor Who, amongst others. He was in the films Everest, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and The Imitation Game and has worked regularly on radio, even playing Claudius in the BBC adaptation of I, Claudius. And he's won an Olivier Award for his performance as Lancelot in Spamalot in the West End. He is, in fact, a rather lovely man. I spoke to Tom at his home earlier this year. Well, to be precise, February the 12th. My birthday, which is sort of what we're talking about when you join the conversation. But before you do that, I have to say, the thing Tom chooses to reject from his life in this episode is, in my opinion, the funniest and yet the most awful of any of my guests so far. See what you think. I hope you enjoy it. But always nice to have something to do when you get to a certain age, don't you? I find that I'm, now I'm in my 50s, <laughs> you know. But I'm, um, I don't just want to 
have my birthday. Mm. I, I want to go and do something to help me forget that it's my birthday. Yeah. This yeah. this is useful. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly the same with me at the moment. That's how I'm feeling. Yeah. You know, if I had to sit around all day thinking, well, I could entertain myself, you know, that's a hell of a birthday. Yeah. Though. Yeah. But I think actually, look, it's my birthday, but I, can't, I don't care. I'm, I'm such a busy man. I can stare at the wall. <laughs> Like every other day. Yeah. <laughs> I just sit on the computer pretending I'm doing things. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that. Uh, although these days I do try because I write as well. Do you mind talking about your career for a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Did you, where did you train? I trained at Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. Um, which, oh, lucky you. I, yeah, I mean, a beautiful place to train. I, I knew I didn't want to train in London. I knew, because I grew up in Northumberland and grew up in, you know, near Newcastle, I knew that if I went to London, I would find it too much. I would be, it would be overwhelming. I wouldn't be able to do it. So I never even tried out for a London school. And Bristol was a place that I nearly went to as a student at university, I, 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 I nearly went there, but I, I went to Warwick, trained as a teacher. But I, I'd always thought I really liked Bristol. And whilst I was at Warwick, I'd been to Edinburgh, you know, with the drama society and stuff. And we shared a venue with a whole gang from Bristol University, which was like Simon Pegg and David Gregg and Graham Etoff and, uh, and, and an old mate of mine from home, from Newcastle, called Steve Melville, who was a brilliant actor, who was at Bristol with all that gang. Sarah Kane oh, was wow. up there, an amazing group. And I thought, I just, oh, God, maybe I should have gone to Bristol. <laughs> and then, so after, after, you know, sort of um, two or three years putting together a, a theatre company with my mate, Mike Punter, who I write with and who I was at university with, my best, most beloved friend. Um, we'd, we'd done that. He got an agent and I was suddenly without our theatre company and thinking, right, what am I going to do? I'll, I'll go and I'll see if I can get into Bristol all bit. And, and it was the only place I tried for and I got in. I just, my immense surprise. And had a lovely time there. Had a brilliant time there. Mm. Mainly because I just love Bristol. It's just a great place to be as a student. It is definitely the city that I would choose to live in if I lived in a city. Yeah, yeah. I, outside of London, it would be, it would probably be my first choice to go to, if not Edinburgh. I love Edinburgh. Mm. Bit but, hilly. Yeah, bit hilly. And the summer's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I went to Bristol Old Vic and then I was really lucky. I got picked up by an agent before I'd finished my final year and went straight into the West End and Brilliant. kind of, it was just a bit nuts. And how old were you when this happened? So I left Bristol Vic when I was 25, mm -hmm. So, which was good. I think it was good to come into it as a graduate yeah. with, a, I suppose, with a bit more of a head on my shoulders. But, you know, no sooner had I started in the West End than I found I was about to be a dad, you know. So my, my first two arrived when I was only just starting to, you know, make any kind of living at all yes. as an actor. So I, I suddenly had that weird pressure of, I've, I've got to take absolutely every job that comes along. <laughs> and I have to get every job I go for. And it was a weird thing. It was an amazing kind of pressure. But also so if you're not exciting. a driven person yourself, suddenly the situation you find yourself in makes you driven. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and I was only, you know, I was doing theatre. And at that time, I only wanted to do theatre. I was, I was really sort of, I loved just wanting to be in the theatre. But, of course, trying to make a living mm. in the theatre and support kids is, you know, is really, really 
a tough, but I was lucky to do sort of West End and Royal Shakespeare Company and National Theatre and English Touring Theatre. And I, got, I kind of, I was literally ticking boxes of all the companies I'd ever wanted to work for. I was really, really lucky. Yes. Um, People don't realise how, how little you get paid for doing theatre. Oh, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's really not. I was, I was, the thing I got that kept my head above water was an ad for BT Cellnet, which no longer exists. No, but you finish it off, and that's what. Yeah, I finished. I did finish it off. <laughs> Literally, they did that campaign. They went that that. It's that laughing copper walking down the Thames. <laughs> we don't want him. Let's just let's just call it a day. Just get, yeah, no. This is never going to work. You is know, it? mobile phones. Who wants those? <laughs> that was the bit that meant we could pay the mortgage and keep the kids in nappies and. All that sort of stuff. I think it's it true for many actors that actually oh, yeah. those sort of corporate or advertising jobs that you do are the things that keep your head above water. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I was doing a lot of corporate at the time as well. I'd mm. forgotten about that, actually. But I quite I enjoyed doing corporate, though, because a lot of the corporate work was corporate films, corporate videos, training videos and things like that. And that, that was my training in front of a camera. I loved it. Of course. I hadn't really had a training. At Bristol Vic, we, we, we had like a term or two, but it was pretty... Then they now they're amazingly set up at Bristol Vic for TV training because you have to be. But then it was, it was it was less important. I think yes. I, I came. I was at the tail end of that kind of classical training. That, just learn to be an actor. Yeah, you just learn to be an actor. Everything else will follow. Exactly. Telly. Well, it's just theatre, but with a camera. Mm. Um, and so doing things like corporate films and stuff like that, training videos, I learned how to be in front of a camera, and I so I kind of loved it. I was getting a free training. Yes that nobody outside of the corporate world was ever going to see. <laughs> so that meant that I could then go to a TV audition and be quite confident. And, and so it was, it I've was, already made my mistakes. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All that rubbish <laughs> is there helping someone how to administer a syringe in, <laughs> in, 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 at 32,000 feet. Yes. Yeah. And then television came along. And then it did come along. And I, again, I was just very lucky because there was this show called People Like Us. Mm-hmm which was the, well, and this is why I was lucky, it was the first mockumentary comedy. Absolutely. And um, written by the brilliant John Morton, mm -hmm. who, of course, did W1A in 2012, and it's about a documentary maker who you never see. Mm. Uh, and each week, they do a different profession. And so I went in for the police officer, and it was extraordinary. It was the most extraordinary experience because it was this brilliant cast. John Morton is an amazing director. Paul Schlesinger is an amazing producer. And, and it was this absolute nugget of comedy joy. It was just a half-hour programme. It was brilliant. And the nation was properly fooled. They thought they were real documentaries. And I was working with Emma Kennedy and David Kahn, who were just two of the funniest people on the planet. And it was just, it was amazing. It was an amazing programme, wasn't it? Was it was a great programme. I, I only two it. series of people like Only us. two series of people like us. But people like, um, you know, David Tennant and Lucy Punch and Stuart Wright and uh, Julia Davis and all sorts of people got Me. a break and people like us. And you, of course! Of course! <laughs> <laughs> and so not the most memorable episode. No, 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 no! I've just forgotten that you did that. I think of you for the myriad other things, but not people like us. Of course you did people like us. Uh. It was one of my God. most joyous experiences. Yeah. So, um, yes, I had a, a lot of fun on that. And that, in turn, led to The Office, because yes. everyone, that, everyone that had done People Like Us, I think Ricky and Steve looked at People Like Us and went, they know how to do this thing. So they got, <laughs> they got everyone into The Office. And so I did the second series of The Office, and so that was yeah. amazing. Um, 
So before you know it, you've done two jobs yeah. that are seminal works. Yeah, and yeah, uh, 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 um, which is great. And it's lovely not to know that when you were doing it as well. You know, we recorded the second series of The Office before the first series had really exploded. Mm. It was out there, but it hadn't gone over onto BBC One. And so it was great just to do that work and be... And because they were mockumentary and because I wasn't experienced in front of a camera... It just felt like just being in a room, doing this quiet improvisation with a load of other people who were just brilliant at it. Mm. Even though you're working with a very tight script, yes. the, the nature of it felt kind of improvisational. But the, you, you're, you're asked to do things that you're not asked to do in many other dramas, which is you're asked to overlap, which yeah. is very unusual. Yeah, overlapping, being incredibly realistic and natural, but also with just with a, an eye to the fact that there's a camera in the room and... And it being okay if you acknowledge it, mm. which is quite I know I'm thing. being filmed. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And now, of course, they've taken it another stage with you know Miranda and Fleabag, where you actually actively acknowledge the camera yes. and, and nod to it and actually talk to it. So it's, it's an interesting progression. That so it was great to be in two shows like that, where you you were just in a room with people and you didn't have to worry about the camera. It was a lovely sort of slow, gentle introduction into doing TV. Yeah. So do you think that's bled into the other television work that you've done? I don't... I try as hard as possible not to do anything that I feel a real human being wouldn't do in that moment. I, mm. I, 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 I think that's what acting is. And, but we both share this thing of going into acting and wanting to do comedy and yeah. wanting to be part of the comedy world because you know you know comic writing at its best is the best writing there is i think yes and so that was always something i wanted to be a part of so obviously people like us in the office were like that but then you know went into ideal which i did for seven seasons mm. working with someone like johnny vegas who is utterly naturalistic um but has a love of the surreal and the crazy and being and being able to communicate both of those and playing opposite him as his best mate and um and just being trying to be as unlike an actor as possible because yeah. Ideal was stuffed with brilliant comedians yes. who were coming to do a bit of acting. Yeah. And I, I was from the other end. I was this classically trained actor who'd done loads and loads of theatre who was trying to do a bit of comedy, you know, <laughs> and, and feeling like a fraud, you know, but absolutely loving it. Johnny Vegas is the most extraordinary man, isn't he? He is. He's incredible. I've had fantastic times with him, but I, he has a following that is so devout. Yeah. I'm topping my tea up, apologies. Mm. I used to go out with Johnny every night that we were shooting together and he couldn't walk down the street. He couldn't yeah. walk. But Johnny, being Johnny, stopped and talked to every single person that stopped to talk to him. Yes. He gave everyone his time, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, just so, just incredibly generous spirit and incredibly kind, mm. amazingly kind man. And an absolute lunatic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's brilliant good. with it. Absolutely brilliant with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was quite something. And then, you know, your career's gone on to all sorts of great well, big was, dramas. Well, it was and, around uh, that time that I met you. Just as, just as we were coming to the So end is that when your deal. career came to an end? Exactly. Mm, I destroyed did, it. Did perfect day and that was it. I suppose if you've got any eye on your career, which as you get older, you have less of an eye on your career than the older you get. If you've got any eye on it... Uh, it's funny how you lose sight of where it's going. Mm. And, and, you know, suddenly you're at the mercy of whatever is going on out there and you just go, oh, well, fair enough, that's what I do now. Yeah, oh. that's a job. Yeah, it's a Great. job. Great. Exactly, yeah. It seems to me that, that 
You've never been typecast. Well, maybe not. I guess I've always tried to avoid it, though, as well. Mm. Um, I suppose now I fight it more than ever because uh, in humans, I was really playing a version of myself. He was, he was as close to me as I've ever played. And I think the problem is, as soon as people see you doing that, they go, oh, that's what he's like. <laughs> and then that's all they want to see. Well, we've sussed him now. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but I'm not complaining. No. No. So anyway, Tom, look at this lovely time capsule I've I got know. For you. Where did you get the sparkles? Ah, uh, well, I just thought for you. Let's make it important. Well, you can't put that underground. Where are you going to keep it? Well, that's up to you. You can hide it away. Or you can just keep it under your bed. It's not going under my bed. Not with what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking for five things that you would like from your life yeah. to put into this time capsule. Okay. Uh, four that you have enjoyed. Yeah. And one that you're really glad you can just seal it away. In seal this it thing. away and try and consign it to the dustbin of memory. Yes. I don't know. I've, I, I, um, I didn't struggle... But I thought, actually, there are so many moments that you really want to lock away so that when you're, you know, 92, you open it up and relive them again. There are so many of those. And they're all related to your family. They are almost all related to your friends and your loved ones. And they're all things that you would all, of course, you want to relive those again. But my feeling is that this is your life. You live it once. You've done that. So I've tried to sort of choose things that aren't really related to, you know, oh, the birth of my child or that, you know. Yes. I try to choose things that are oddities, I suppose you would call them. Yeah. Or that have a certain resonance throughout the rest of my life, but are sort of particular moments. That makes them unique to you, though. It, it, it does make them unique, but they, I, I've only just sort of realised that they sort of resonate. They're moments that resonate. So sort of by, by burying them and then digging them back up again, you live that moment, but you also remember all the other moments that are associated to it. Yeah, yeah useful. I suppose that's it. Well, the first one, just because it's the earliest in my life, mm-hmm. is the one I want to lock away and, and never, never see again. Right. Let's get it out of the way. So let's get it out of the way. I think bad news first. In good news, bad news, <laughs> let's always do the bad news first. It's so traumatic, I can feel my stomach gurgling <laughs> and burps rising that are going to be picked up on the microphone. You know, you just go, yeah. you go, right, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to tell you this. <laughs> so, so when I was, so as I said, I grew up in Newcastle and my brother and I went to an all-boys school, the Royal Grammar School in Newcastle. And my brother, who's five years older than me, um, he, he had a scholarship there. So he had a, he had a free place at the Royal Grammar. And brilliant man, my brother, the greatest man I know, still the greatest man I know, and, and the greatest friend I know, the greatest older brother you could possibly have. And he was like, he was the school star, you know, he was head boy, captain of the rowing team, and he was the best actor in the school as well, amazing actor, my brother. So no pressure. Then. So no pressure. Yeah, exactly. And, I, <laughs> and there was a junior school and a senior school. And so at the point when I came into the junior school, Max had already gone up into the senior school because he was 12. Mm. So, so I, I did at least have this thing of, well, I'm at the junior school, the senior school's over the road. At least I can be at junior school without the pressure of my brilliant older brother being in the same building, you know. And I got to about eight years old. And uh, our head master was called Mr Jones. They all were. Mr Jones. He had to be called Mr all Jones. All teachers were called Mr Jones. And... I'm sure he was a very kind and lovely man. He was quite sort of 
portly, round glasses, very little hair, quite military, definitely ex-military. And he instantly incurred my hatred because he always called me Thomas. My name is not Thomas, my name is Tom. And it angered me like nobody's business, you know, because he wouldn't call Max Maxwell or Maximilian. Max was always Max, but I was always Thomas. And I was like, it's Tom, sir, it's Tom. Tom, Mr. Jones. Always called me Thomas. And uh, there was, as you have with all schools, you know, you have your sports days. And the school had a swimming pool. And they had a swimming gala. When I was eight, the swimming... (laughs) The swimming gala was planned for, I don't know, a couple of weeks away uh, on a Friday. And um, it was immediately after school. It started at three o'clock. It wouldn't finish till four. And my mum used to teach domestic science at Kirkley Hall Agricultural College just outside Newcastle. So she used to teach cookery and domestic science. And she would always have to go to work on a Friday. And normally I'd get home from school. She'd go off to work. Mm. So on this occasion, she said, well, you... You can't stay to the end of Swimming Gala because I've got to go off to work. So you're going to have to get home before it finishes. And you're not in a race. You're just watching. So Mm. could you just go and see Mr. Jones and say, you know, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to leave Swimming Gala early because you've got to get home because mum's going to work. I was like, yeah, sure. Mm. So next day I go into school and uh, I walk in and first morning break, I think I better go and see Mr. Jones and tell him that I can't do Swimming Gala. And walk up to his office, knock, knock on the door. Thomas! Yes, Mr. Jones, it's Tom, Mr. Jones. <laughs> Sit down and tell him that I can't go to Swimming Gala because I'm going to a cocktail party. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you're, you're what, Thomas? Uh, I'm going to a cocktail party, sir. <laughs> oh, you know. Uh, where is this cocktail party? Um, it's at the Heslops over the road. Is it really? Yes, yes, and uh, we have to be there by four o'clock. <laughs> so I have to leave to get to the cocktail party with my mummy and daddy. <laughs> All right then, Thomas, uh, you should leave at three o'clock. Thank you, Mr. Jones. To this day, I do not know why I suddenly decided <laughs> to that not I tell was him the going, truth. Yeah, what on earth was I? Just bizarre. But that was what my head was like. It was just this ridiculous fantasy telling them I was going to a cocktail party. Because I think in my head, he wouldn't buy the idea that my mum had to go to work and I had to get home. I thought in my head he thought he wouldn't take that seriously. That's what I think happened. Thought no more about it. The day of the swimming gala, three o'clock, up, left, went home, thought no more about it. Mum went off to work. Monday at about... (laughs) 10.35 10.35 morning break, Monday morning, I'm outside, Mr. Jones comes rattling across the playground, literally picks me up by the ear and says, my office, Thomas, and walks me, marches me up to his office. And I, because I'm eight, thinking, what's this about? I, don't, I haven't done anything wrong, what's, what's going on? Plonked in his chair, that was a cocktail party, really nice thank you (laughs) Mr Jones yes it's really nice good strange though because I just saw your brother he has no recollection of the cocktail party (laughs) (laughs) does 
doesn't he? Oh, that's a sh- shame because I think he had a nice time. <laughs> go to a cocktail party, did you, Thomas? No, Mr. Jones, I didn't go to a cocktail party. I just, I had to get home for my mother was going to work. I didn't think you believe it. You lied, Thomas. And I was put in detention for the rest of the term. The rest of the term? The rest of the term. And uh, it was... I can't tell you the effect it had on me. The fact that I... The fact that it, it still has an effect on me now, that story. Because to me, everything I said was legitimate. <laughs> yeah. I did need to get home. Yes. But the knock-on effect was huge. It was... my, my Because it, suddenly... I stopped being the creative little kid who liked pretending to be other people, and I became the liar. Mm. It was horrible. You were branded. Oh, I was branded. It was, it was horrible. Your brother is head boy of the senior school. You're the liar. Yes. And it He's was... He's something you'll never be. Oh, my God. It was, it was absolutely... It was devastating. Yeah. And, I, I, and I, I still have nightmares about it. And it, it absolutely tore me apart. It, it, was, it, was, it was awful. I was no longer, you know, a, a straightforward, well-behaved boy. I was, I was the liar. That, that, that's, yeah. that's Tom Hill, yes, he tells lies. Your that's, status has completely changed then. Completely, yeah. Are you, because you, you're, you're sort of no longer, you no longer have the potential that your brother no. would have had at the same age because you've, you've been tarred, you know. Mm. It's like, and, and it's an extraordinary, <laughs> it was weird. And it still is, and it still kills me. It still kills me. Because for one tiny little childhood mistake, yeah. one little moment of childhood invention, yeah. you're absolutely branded as this untrustworthy person. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, that's really devastating. It's really weird, isn't it? And I knew instantly that was the one I wanted just to bury. And, never, and you know, there are many other things that I could, I could bury, but that one, I know, is the one that first really hit me at a young age where I went, oh, that was an awful thing. I didn't mean it in the way they think I meant it. No. But I did it. It's had a horrible negative effect. It's, it's but by its very nature, compared me to my brother in a way that is harmful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's slightly shamed my brother. You know, it's awful. He didn't, he didn't want to... He's like, why'd you do that? I was like, I don't know. I just thought, you know, he's like, oh, mate, what are you doing? You know, my mum was like, why did you? Why would you tell her? Why would you do that? But, <laughs> but the traumas of those of being that age and those things happening, because yeah. I think that most people have something at that age that they think it all seems so unfair because yeah. I, I didn't mean to do it. And then all, all children do things which then, having put themselves in that position, you then sit in your bedroom crying or you've been sent to your room or something yeah. and you sit there thinking, well, why can't... I didn't really want to do that. I just... Can't I just take the time back? Yeah, just let me roll it back a little. Just roll it back and I'll just tell him the truth. Yeah, yeah. And you can't undo something like that. And it's, no. It's... Maybe it's a valuable lesson to learn. Well, I think it was because I also then... I think in the same moment, I think it also taught me the power of language. It taught me... How meaning, saying something and meaning it Mm. is really, really important. Mm. And saying something truthful is more important than whether they receive it in the way that it's intended. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do know what you mean. And and I think that's something that that I I carried with me 
it was a big lesson that actually the moment you open your mouth, what comes out matters. Yes. I have that problem that often, in order to appear more friendly, if people say, and I was talking to uh, Peter Johnson, do you know Peter? I, I will just automatically say, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they go, where do you know him from? And I, I don't know him. I do it all the time. I, I have no idea who he is. When I said yes, I meant no. Yeah. He's so glib. <laughs> no, I am glib. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Oh, Tom, that's, that's really... Oh, my word, that's quite affected me, actually. It's a weird one, though, isn't it? Because it's nothing, really. No, it is nothing. It is nothing, but you know how important those moments of nothing are to a child. Yeah. So we're going to take that. We're going to take that awful moment. I think that's good. I would love to go to that cocktail party with you. I know. I know. I'd to go over the road to the neighbours at half past three in the afternoon for a cocktail party. The weird thing is that in, in, in sort of revisiting it in dreams and stuff... I've been to that cocktail party. Of course. I've totally been to that cocktail party. I've drunk a cocktail. Mm. I was eight. I've, you know, <laughs> I, I've, I've completely, I've had a margarita. And Marvellous. got in conversation with Jeff and Judy Heslop. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, but, it, but it, I, I think part of me in my head had to convince me that I had to been to that cocktail party in order to cover it. Yes. Had to. Ridiculous. Oh, well. Ridiculous. But that is going in the bin. It's in there. It's in there. When we seal this thing, that's gone. And it's not being reopened. It's gone. You don't have to worry about it again. You are no longer a liar. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So then that got me thinking. So this is your your second idea. So So we're moving into more pleasant areas. Exactly, yeah. Right, we're going to take a break here for some adverts. We'll be back very shortly. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what else Tom Goodman Hill would like to put in his time capsule. It got me. It got me to thinking about family holidays. I tell you what did this was um, three years ago. My son Joe was he was at Falmouth University and he took a year out on the Erasmus course to Augsburg uh, in Germany to study graphic design in one year out in Augsburg and. Uh, Jess and I went to 
see him out there. And uh, we had a great time, but we, we, we did a bit of a sort of journey across Germany. And when we got to Augsburg, I realised that we were less than an hour from a place called Füssen. We drove down to Füssen, jumped in the car, and we had a lovely day out. And we realised while we were there that at the top of the hill just outside Füssen is a castle called Neuschwanstein. And Neuschwanstein is the castle from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, my word. And we were all at the end of the day. It was too late to go up to Neuschwanstein, but I suddenly remembered that we had been there on a family holiday when I was really, oh, I must have been, it was probably around the same time as Mr. Jones. You and deserved a holiday. Yeah, I did deserve a holiday. It was pretty soon after, which is probably why it's so alive in my memory. I, I may have been a, well, about a year older, maybe. Uh, and you, had, they took, uh, just a minute, they, they took you on holiday to the place where children were taken and <laughs> hidden in a cave. That's exactly it. I think I was probably at that time hoping that the child catcher would just take me away and spare my parents the embarrassment. <laughs> so, uh, but it took me, it, it reminded me of that holiday. And, uh, and I, I, you know, witted to Joe about it all the way back to Augsburg in the car, telling him all about this amazing holiday. Because my, my, my dad was, who uh, passed away last year, my dad was uh, obsessed with Germany and Austria. My mum, much less so, bless her, was always... <laughs> What's su- wrong with Marbella? Suffering, exactly. <laughs> she was always suffering the, uh, the Bavarian holidays. But the holiday we had to Fusen was great. I just remember it being one of those joyous, full-on family holidays where everyone just had the most amazing time. Everyone, every, everyone just laughed their head off. And we went to the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang Castle and, and the scenery was incredible and just... Um, me and my brother, we, we were at an age, well, whatever we were, sort of 9 and 14 or 10 and 15, mm. when we were having great fun together yeah. and just kicking about. And I think that holiday's always stayed with me. It was the last really happy holiday we had when my parents were still very happy together because my dad left when I was 13. Mm. And, uh, and I think I also remember it for that reason. But it's tied with another family holiday. Which, which I, I, I sort of link the two in my head, I don't know why, which was one that my brother and I took with my mum around Scotland in a Ford Fiesta. And we went all the way around the north coast of Scotland in a Ford Fiesta and had an absolutely amazing time um, when Dad had, you know, more or less gone. And the two holidays, I don't know why I link them, but I do, because they were equally happy but in totally different ways. And also because I think my brother and I were a few years old, that we were full-on teenagers, and we were supporting mum, you know, yes. taking her around Scotland and, yeah. and having a great time with her, and my, my brother and mum shared the driving as well, you know, oh, Max was old enough by then. And th- those family holidays, if I'm allowed to have two together... Yes, we can, we can yeah. put them together. Uh, I mean, you can take family holidays. I can take family holidays, but it's but nice there's to have something it more about specific. those two, I think, that were, were kind of amazing. It's interesting, if you said to most teenagers now, OK, we've organised the holiday, <laughs> uh, we're going to go on a tour of German castles, yeah. and then we're going to go right round the coast of Scotland... Um, I think the reaction might be slightly different to your <laughs> yeah. reaction to it now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so. I, 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 yeah, they do feel like they're from a complete... Well, they are from a different age, those kind of holidays, when you're travelling just with a map mm-hmm. in the family car and also you're, you're not booking ahead. You know, you're just rocking up somewhere and going, have you got a room? Wow, brilliant. Which, which 
increasingly is difficult to do these days because Almost impossible. everyone books online and everyone and if you've got an app you just yeah. you just look at it. why would you wait until you got there when you can look now exactly and also the way booking systems work mm-hmm. they fill everything up so if you just rock up you're told there's no room even if there are five empty that aren't going to be occupied you know <laughs> all that nonsense happens so you kind of can't do those sort of holidays and and as you say touring with a map it's an experience that i don't think people will ever have again yeah. unless they deliberately are being obtuse. I they? thought about it the other day because the um, mountain rescue team had rescued four climbers, in inverted commas, off the top of Ben Nevis in the middle of the evening in a sort of wind chill of minus 20 degrees. Mm. And the rescue team was sort of saying to each other, in ama- all four of them survived, they were fine, but the, um, the rescue team was saying to each other in amazement, they went up in trainers, and I don't think they had a map. Oh, my God. And I thought only only now <laughs> would people do that. Yeah. Because there's this weird feeling now with people going on holiday that they can just do anything. Well, I'm just going to drive across the outback. I'll be fine. I'm just going to drive through the bush. <laughs> no, no, you won't. You won't be fine. <laughs> but because <laughs> everything seems accessible and within a minute's reach and everything seems possible and you can just stop at a shop somewhere, there's bound to be a shop. There are still places on earth where you just can't do that, no. and nor should you ever try. But I think when I was a kid, the sense was that there was still a sense that places were unknown, and there was a frisson of danger or, or exoticism about going somewhere where you could just try and wing it a bit with a map. And it might be foolhardy, but actually that's what holidays were about. Yes. But that reminds me of another family holiday where we went to Sicily when I was about three. And I barely remember, the only thing I remember was being on my dad's shoulders as we walked up Mount Etna. Wow. I think we took a, we were in a bus most of the way up and I do remember that nearly coming off the edge of the road. And I remember my mum being absolutely terrified, but me being three couldn't see why. I just thought it was hilarious. Mm. And being on Dad's shoulders, and he was wearing wellies, I think. And we walked (laughs) to the top of Etna and and looked down into the crater. And my memory could be playing tricks on me. I don't know. No, I think you can. But looked down into the crater, and it was a red, boiling, lava-filled crater. And there were guys in silver heat suits, a couple of guys walking around the rim of the crater. And I've never forgotten looking into the crater and thinking, oh, that's wrong. Yeah. And we got home and less than a week after we got home, Etna erupted and wiped out two villages on the side of Mount Mm. So, yeah, family holidays I'll have. Let's let's see if you're going to let me lump them in. Yeah, I'll say family holidays. Definitely. Particularly those two. Those two, they sound... Absolutely horrendous, Tom. To me, <laughs> to me as a, yeah, I know what I want to do. Now, maybe as I get older, the idea of, uh, of going around German castles becomes more attractive. But uh, as, a, as a nine-year-old, yeah. uh, I think no, unless you really deserve that punishment as a, a school liar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, I was a weird kid, Mike, so that's... that's we were all weird kids, yeah, really. Yeah, of Tom. course we were. In reality, we were. there isn't anything other than a weird kid. No, no, indeed. So what would you like to put in as your third item? As my third thing. It's to do with my grown-up kids again. It's to do with Joe and Ellen. It's, it's the, the experience of seeing your children be, just become their own people in, in a moment. Mm. Kind of defining themselves. Yes. 
And sort of the moment that you realise yeah, that's what they are. Yeah, yeah, and it's an extraordinary thing. And for, and for both of them, they were sort of similar events. One was my daughter having a piece that she had made in London Fashion Week, and this was before she went to Central St Martins, where she studies fashion design. She was doing a, a course about 18 months before she started there uh, with a, a group called FAD, and she'd created this incredible outfit and, and of, of, all the, um, of all the students doing this course, she was the only one who designed something for a man to wear. And just going to that show as part of London Fashion Week and watching that guy walk out wearing it and watching my daughter flanked by her best mates, just the look on her going, just, just the extraordinary sense of, A, going, that's amazing that you've done that and that is clearly the thing you want to do. Yes. And also the sense of, a weird feeling of oh I, I don't need to be here. No, and that that was that was an extraordinary moment, and I felt the same thing going to see Joe's first. Get an emotional mic, sorry. Going to see Joe's first late works event. He 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 calls himself Late Works, where he he um, and Late Works is uh, a brand that does creative arts of um, you know music and art and jazz and pottery and dance and everything and he brings multiple disciplines together and sees how they react with each other mm. and the first one he did was asking artists to paint each side of a trifolding screen and then a jazz band improvised their responses to the paintings wow. so you had a, a concert that was two halves of two 20-minute improvisations incredible mm. and watching him introduce it and saying thank you to the artists and the musicians and, and then him sitting down and watching the event unfold and going, wow, he put that together. It's just incredible. Yeah. And it's the amazing thing of utterly enjoying watching it and again going, I don't need to be here. No. And it was just a really, it's, it's an amazing thing. And if you can bottle that and experience that again, mm. wow, because it's, it's just an extraordinary thing. It's a great thing to realise, I think, because yeah, many people don't ever realise it. Yeah, so le letting them, just knowing that they're doing their own thing mm -hmm. is amazing. And it also, I suppose it teaches you that um, no one person matters that much. No. So when you, when you watch, particularly when you're watching young people like that in their late teens, early 20s, all working together, cooperating, creating together in a big sort of team and there's no there's no sense of hierarchy at that age everyone's really creative and working together mm. that's an amazing thing yes. and and i think that's a that's quite a new thing there's some um, something about i'm very hopeful about this this generation you know the generation that are coming into their 20s now when you look at the sort of the 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 youngest of that generation, people like Greta Thunberg, and then you look at people in their mid-twenties. That generation, I think, they're, they're the ones that are going to sort all this mess out. Well, I hope so. And when you watch them cooperate like that... And, and, and in, in all areas, you look at sportsmen and you see, you suddenly think, yeah. actually, I'm listening to footballers who are, who are speaking intelligently about racism. Uh, not just, it yeah. was a game of two halves. It's amazing. It's amazing. They're, they're, they are more complex emotionally and they are more complex creatively and intellectually they are far better informed than 
the generation before them. Mm-hmm. I I think, and I think people who say otherwise are actually wrong. Yeah, <laughs> people who try to say no, they're dumbed down. They've been using their phones. They're doing it on the internet. They're wrong. I don't think that's the case. So um, yeah, it makes me hopeful, and I suppose it's that thing. Just seeing a generation. Um, so. Um, yeah, bottle that, please. Yes, absolutely. Let's bottle it. Um, let's put good. that in there. Wonderful. Yes, let's put that into the time capsule. Good. And then I've got a couple of silly ones. Silly's good. This is just... It sounds like a, just a stupid name drop. And, and I suppose it is in a way. But to me, it's significant because it's about that generational thing that I always feel like I'm at the tail end of one generation of actors and, and sort of clinging to the coattails of the one ahead of me, if you know <laughs> what I mean. And so 18 years ago, I did a film called The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which was a pr- preposterous superhero movie based on a wonderful Alan Moore graphic novel. The only thing I knew about it was that it starred Sean Connery. Sean Connery was playing Alan Quartermain. And I thought, oh, I want this. I, just, I would just love to be in a movie with Sean Connery. Mm. And to my astonishment, got it. (laughs) And then had the most amazing time in Prague shooting it in 2002. It was an amazing crew. It was an incredible cast. It was very lucky. It was a joyous moment in time. And one of my absolute best friends, Tony Curran, who was playing the Invisible Man in it. (laughs) It's so silly when you talk about it. And Jason Fleming, who was playing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, and you just go, this is hilarious. And Connery himself was just such an extraordinary being, just mm. he, 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 because he, he, he was just from another era, completely from another era, like Kirk Douglas. He felt like that era of filmmaking. But the reason I'm, I'm putting it in there is because the first two weeks of filming on that film were basically just me and Connery. <laughs> and we, there's this whole sequence in the Britannia Club right at the beginning of the film where Sanderson Reed goes to visit Alan Quartermain to recruit him for the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And it was just, it was me and him for two weeks on this set. And, and David Hemmings. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was a complete baptism of fire for me. I had never been on a film set that big. I'd never been anywhere like that. Connery could not have been nice to me. He was absolute gentleman. Giant of a man. You know, mm. this incredible, huge guy. His screen presence, everything about him, you could, you, it was coming off him in waves just being in the same room. And it was an extraordinary experience. With a director, Steve Norrington, who was a brilliant young indie film director, and the t- two guys just hated each other. <laughs> and they just couldn't... They could barely be in the same room. And it was the most extraordinary experience because they got on with it, you know, they mm. did the job, but they just didn't see eye to eye. And, and, and at the end of it, each of them retired from, from the film industry. Stephen sent an open letter to all the studios saying, I'm never making a studio picture again. And Connery said, I'm retiring as an actor. <laughs> and uh, it was bizarre. And, uh, but I, but I'm sort of, and David Hemmings, you know, died yeah. very shortly after making it. And so it was this extraordinary thing, making that. And I'm sat there in my bowler hat and my three-piece suit going, I don't know what I'm doing no. on this film set. And, and Tony played a bit of golf. And Tony is, an, is a Scotsman. He's an Edinburgh man. And, yes. and they just got on a house on fire. They were quoting Burns poetry to each other. They would turn up in kilts every time we went for a meal. <laughs> and Tony played a bit of golf. Connery is obviously a scratch golfer. Mm. And <laughs> T- 
Tony went, should we go and play golf together to, to Connery? And I'm sat opposite Tony going, what? what? And, uh, and Connery went, yeah, let's, uh, let's play a four ball. <laughs> and, and sort of nudged me and went, do you play? I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course I, I play. Went, yeah, of course I play. <laughs> I was hopeless. So the three of us teamed up with Tony Teager, who was the props master, did a four ball at the Karlstein course outside Prague. And it's that that I want to bottle. <laughs> Just because it was the stupidest day of my life. Yeah. It was the stupidest day of my life. Going around in golf buggies, which we could barely drive. <laughs> at one point, I think on the ninth, I rolled it. I rolled the golf buggy. We both came out of it, <laughs> going down a hill. And coming to the other end, it was a beautiful day. And sort of sitting down for lunch, totting up how we'd done around the course. And, you know, Connery and Tony were going around par or thereabouts. Yeah. My mate Tony was going around, he went around about 80, and he did really well. And Connery turned to me and went, how about you? And I went, oh, you know, not, 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 the, not the best around I've ever had, Sean. He went, oh, what a... A day at the office. <laughs> I was like, what? He went, nine, five, nine, five, nine, five. And he was bang on, because I went around in 126, which was <laughs> nine, five, nine, five, nine, five. I went around in a shocking number. I mean, I was just uh, hitting it all over the place. But one of the best days of my life, because it was just ridiculous. I was yes. like playing golf with Sean Connery. What is going on? Yeah. But it was, there was something about that day that was just that brought it home to me that, that I, I'm just, it's such a different era mm. that for, for Connery, that, that's just what you do. You're on this massive movie, you go and play a game of golf. Yeah. And, uh, and then you go for dinner, have a, you know, a couple of glasses of wine, roll in the next day, do the next bit, you know. And, and for me, it was like, this, this is the biggest thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. I'm working more with a lot of my heroes. Yeah. But I'm having the time of my life watching the grand age of cinema recede into the distance. Yeah. In my experience, it was working with very old actors when I was a young actor and seeing their world, the world which is completely gone, which is the world that they would turn up and, uh, and they would have a large whiskey before going on stage because it loosened them up. Yeah. But at the same time, watching them and seeing, seeing them take breaths and being astonished by the size of their diaphragm, just they'd have yeah. the most in, enormous chest because they'd played these huge halls yeah. all their life. Technically, their bodies were extraordinary instruments, yeah. Yeah. and yet they took no care of them at all. No, 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 it was, it was, it was constant abuse, mm. but um, always ready to go, you know. That's what Hemmings was like. He was amazing. But yeah. he, he, was, he, was, he was only in that one scene, but he was... Um, uh, just fresh and spry and ready to improvise and make up little lines and just it was it was amazing to see uh, to see someone that relaxed on a film set yeah and you're I'm, just terrified about getting your line right exactly mm. and Connery's relaxation was, was just on another level I mean yeah. it was it was incredible he was in complete command of the set and it's an amazing thing to see and mm. I, I don't think there's anybody alive that is really or certainly working, that is still really like that. No. So I'd bottle that. Lovely. Well, so there we are. We come to the final. We have. Of... We're on the final one. The final one is a recent one, but it, it sort of ties everything together. And it's, um, it's going to see David Byrne's American Utopia gig at the O2. 
I went to see it with Jess. She was pregnant with Stan. Mm-hmm. A few rows ahead of us were my ex, Kerry, and Joe and Ellen, <laughs> my two. They, they were watching it at the same time. So a real by, family event. Yeah, but by a complete coincidence, in fact. We booked it all separately. And watching David Byrne, who, along with Bowie, is my absolute idol, and watching him, the American Utopia gig is like, it's similar in spirit and in essence and in choreography and in stagecraft, very similar to Storm Making Sense, which is the gig that made Talking Heads famous, which mm. was Byrne's band that became an amazing Oscar-winning film. And, uh, and to see my sort of hero up there uh, was just incredible, singing songs that I'd grown up singing along with Bowie's songs, you know, the David Byrne songs, all those Talking Heads songs, they're the ones that I grew up with. Mm. And they're the ones that accompanied all my kind of fantasies at the time of being of becoming an actor. I, I, I think I associated it all with it because David Byrne and David Bowie were both chameleons. You know, they both were able to adopt personas and they, they used acting as part of their music. And mm. so I obsessively listened to Bowie and Burn and to Kate Bush, who also had the same ability, because they encapsulated that feeling of taking the listener to another world, and they all had that incredible stagecraft, mm. uh, which is actually quite rare amongst musical performers. It's amazing when you get the whole thing. Prince had it as well, mm. and, and and it's an amazing thing to see. But watching it then was incredible, and and you know Jess and I were, were recently married, and you know the. He played This Must Be The Place, Naive Melody, which was our first dance at our wedding. And so it was, it was just, it was one of those gigs where you go, oh, yeah, I want this playing in my head over and over oh. and over, please. I know they filmed it. I cannot wait for it to come out on DVD because I just want to watch it again. Yeah. They filmed it the night we were there, in fact. So it's like, I can, I can almost have it myself for a time capsule, <laughs> but I know that I can't have that experience of being in that room. No with him and his extraordinary troupe of musicians Mm. who were all dancers and singers and just the incredible experience of watching something so theatrical and so minimal but so huge and so emotional all in one go. And uh, probably the first big thing that our baby probably heard properly in the womb as yeah. well, you know. Yeah, your baby could probably feel the excitement I think from, so. from both of you. I think so, because Jess was dancing. It was she wasn't quite big enough that she couldn't dance along, you know. Yeah. And uh but it was uh yeah, it was a great night. Fantastic. Great night. I performed at the very first comic relief um show at Shaftesbury Avenue on the stage and we were all told to line up in the wings at the end and that we would go on for the chorus of Feed the World yeah. uh, which was being sung on stage by Bob Goldoff and Midure. Yeah. <laughs> so we lined up in, in the wings in the dark and I found myself standing just in front of Kate Bush. Wow. And while they sang the opening bit of it, now I'm getting emotional. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And they sang, as they sang the opening bit of it, uh, we all just stood and watched. And then Kate Bush turned around, she, t- she turned around and looked at me, and she said, isn't it amazing? <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, if she thinks it's amazing, <laughs> I'm in heaven. Yeah, yeah. But I loved the fact that she was still moved by this moment yeah. and that she was excited by the idea of us all going on and singing this song. Yeah. 
it's funny looking, uh, being on the outside and looking in, I think, with idols like that, mm. that sometimes you don't ever want to feel that you know them as people. And sometimes you're glad that you do. Mm. And I'm, I, I think I'm, I think, I think I'm glad that I never met David Bowie. I don't think I could have handled it. But I, I would actually still like to meet David Byrne, and I mm. can't explain why that is. I've been in the same room with him. Went to, I was in New York with Jess, and we went to see Love Lies Here on its final preview. And in the interval, we sort of wandered down, and there was David Byrne in his all-white tracksuit with his notepad making little notes. And I thought, oh, wow, fantastic, you're here, and just sort of working on it and just in with the audience and having a good time and really part of it. And I thought, yeah, oh, good guy, that's nice. You know, but I'm not going to walk up to you and say... Couldn't no. do it. No. Couldn't do it. I think I nodded at him and then got a bit scared. <laughs> <laughs> but I, one day I'd like to be able to have a conversation, you know. Well, we're going to take that concert. Good. Wow. I wish Thank I'd you. seen it now. It was an amazing gig. I might sneak in one day and when you're not looking and have a look at it. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, it's yours. It's yours. Yeah, okay. right. It's no, completely right. private. It, it, it I can't do that. It depends where we're going to keep this. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to break the rules. Though. If it's being kept in your downstairs toilet, I'm not sure I trust you. <laughs> Nobody's ever trusted me in a downstairs toilet. <laughs> and I don't blame them. Uh, Tom, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing those Absolute with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. It's been enormous fun. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Tom Goodman-Hill. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you would rate us and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You just search at MyTCPod or me, Mike Fenton-Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton-Stevens, and the music is by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. Next week, my guest is... A different person, obviously. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to Quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.